Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, well, going back to January 9 of this year. It feels like a very, very long time ago. Way back then, Doc was on holidays, and so we had our very first special guest for the podcast, Warren Hogan. Now, January 9, we couldn't have exactly known what was going to happen. In fact, when we spoke in January, I, I, have, I pulled up the old script and I led it with comments about the bushfires that was the then current uh, issue or <laughs> problem confronting our community, things have changed a very significant deal in just four months. Now, before I introduce him formally, let me tell you that Warren Hogan is the industry professor at UTS Business School, based in the Finance Discipline Group. He's also the principal of his advisory firm, EQ Economics. He worked at the Federal Treasury and he was the chief economist at ANZ Bank. He's also worked at Credit Suisse, a whole lot of other places. Warren Hogan knows what he's talking about, and I'm very pleased and very thankful that he decided to join us again to tell us, frankly, what on earth is going on and where we're at. G'day, Warren. G'day. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Matt. Now, look, to be very clear to our listeners, we're not sure where this will go up yet, but we're recording this on Wednesday, the 6th of May, and frankly, given the way the economy's been and the news flow has been, anything could happen between now and when this gets published. Mate, I'm gonna, it's hard to even know where to start this one. We spoke, as I said, on January 9, and at that point, we had no inkling that we'd be where we are now some, or less than four months later. It's been a, a heck of a journey. I guess I'll probably start just by saying, how are you feeling about where we are right now, economically? Oh, well, I mean, none of us have seen anything like this. It's been an absolutely unique set of circumstances. Um, I've done a lot of work in the last few months on what this economic shock looks like, what it represents, where, where, what, what it means. And, you know, I, I can't escape the, the, the reality that, you know, outside of some major natural catastrophe or, or major war, you, you couldn't think of a worse shock to, to an economy. Um, yeah. You've stopped it you know, stopped a major part of it. And um, we're seeing that now being borne out. I mean, I was doing early work on the job losses before there was any data and I couldn't believe what I was, my spreadsheet was popping out. And unfortunately it's proven to be right. And, you know, we've lost a million jobs in six weeks. Um, it's been confirmed with the government talking about how many new applications there are for job seeker. Right. You know, it's right. not, it's not speculation now. Um, and that is, that's, that's, that's as bad as it gets, um, I would have thought. I mean, we certainly haven't seen anything like this in the last couple hundred years. I mean, even in war, it's a, it's a different set of circumstances. So, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in a lot of strife and there's a lot of unknowns out there. There's, there's the known unknowns, um, which are, are, are really difficult to um, pinpoint. There's a lot of risk on how things could play out. I mean, right now, I think in Australia, um, all, all the sort of uncertainty around whether or not we get a, a, some sort of a decent recovery. We minimise job losses and get back up and running in 21. And and, and, and after that, it is, comes down to how the banks can handle this. And it's all about the risk um, uh, that's sitting in the banking system, their capacity to absorb losses, how they manage that, um, and uh, what we see pop out at the end of this six months. Because we're now in a sort of a six-month holding period with all these government programs, the bank interest rate monitoriums, um, hopefully we'll start to get the place open by the end of that six months period. And then we've got to say, well, what's it look like in September once we get through our winter? And, and, and we, we just don't know is the bottom line. And you can see that reflected in the wide ranges of views out there and things like the price action and markets, which are very volatile. 
It's been fascinating, mate. Look, I guess I've got a dozen questions written in front of me, but I guess I'll probably ask almost none of them and we'll just make this a pretty wide-ranging conversation. So let me start halfway through your answer just then. You kind of inferred or said outright it's all up to the banks from here. Give us that Give us that kind of story. Why, how, and what does it mean for it to be all up to the banks? What do we, what do we expect from here? Yeah, so as the government sort of made clear, and it's great that they've been on top of this from the get-go, is that when you, when you have a sort of a shock like this and a downturn, that's so sudden that it's you know you got to you got to do you think about what caused the Great Depression and the, the shock that, that that started it all in the late twenties early thirties um, was no different to what we saw in in you know the two thousand and eight or you know the tech wreck in two thousand it was a bad policy response which made it a Great Depression and you know we obviously haven't gone that route but the key key to to you know you know, keeping the economy going is shoring up a basic income for the broad community and they've done that with JobKeeper, expanding JobSeeker. But then the next piece is about business failure um, and that's where the banks come into it. Now, there's businesses that are insolvent right now. Now, the, you know, no one's going to call them on it because we all know why. But the answer, question really is, is what will they look like in September or, or even in a year's time, in March, and, and are they going to be solvent then? Um, and what will they look like when they're solvent? Are they going to be a quarter of the size or three quarters of the size? Now, in the meantime, the banks who are typically, you know, got loans out to these these different businesses are going to have to make a decision whether they continue to extend credit to them, whether they pull the rug out underneath them, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all essentially now factoring in substantially higher loan losses. And we've seen that in that round of reporting from three of them. Um, and, you know, some have even said that that's conservative. But the reality is is that how many businesses survive is going to determine um, the kind of trajectory we're going, to, we're going to take out of the end of this six-month period and into 2020 and what kind of recovery we've got. And I, would, I think one of the things that's not talked about a lot or I'm not hearing and seeing a lot of is what was the situation in the economy in, in February? Now, what did we look like when this hit? And I think we discussed this in January, this concept that, you know, we've had this really easy monetary policy and we've got this issue where we haven't been turning over capital. We've got these zombie firms. And what worries me is that we're going to get a lot more job business failures than, than, than we otherwise would because we were carrying a lot of weak firms into this. Firms that might not have even been around in 2020 if interest rates had been at a, at a more normal level. So, look, that's that's what I mean by that. Uh, the banks have got a, a huge task on their hand. They're well capitalised. There's no doubt about that. That's the good thing about the the, the the financial crisis that made the banks hold a lot more capital. But I would note that the, the primary buffer to banks being able to absorb losses is their profitability, and that's been going downward um, the last 10 years and becoming more reliant on interest income. So their non-interest income revenue lines have been shrinking. And if you look at the overall Australian banking system, it's, it's profitability as a percentage of GDP. It's almost halved in the last 10 years. So we've halved that buffer. Um, so, you know, that's why NAB raised capital. That's why the others cut the dividend yeah. is because they have a much skinnier buffer on a slightly bigger capital base, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, and then we, now and, and yeah, that's 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 you know in a market economy and a, a, you know the banking system is one of the key buffers to a downturn. So we're gonna we're gonna test ours out, you know, see how strong our banking system is in the next six months. Now, mate, there's two there's two potential issues I see, and you'll know better than I. In terms of we want the banks to kind of do the right thing by business to give them some breathing room. 
on the other hand, they can't, I mean, there's, they're, not, they're not endless pots of capital themselves. I mean, there's only so much equity inside those banks. There are only so many bad debts they can absorb. I, I mean, at some point you've got the risk of simply can the bank, you know, how does that, how does that play out? I mean, in, in one version of the future, there are just simply too many bad debts that overwhelm the banks and they need to have meaningful capital raisings at a very worst case scenario, a bank bailout of some description from the government. You know, it's fine for people, particularly people who maybe don't know those numbers that you just talked about, about the halving of, of profitability as a share of GDP. I mean, the banks aren't endless pools of capital. Yes, they make a lot of money, but they distribute almost all of that to shareholders most most periods. You know, what, what risk are the banks themselves? Look, I think um, I, I'm not I'm not uncomfortable with the consensus coming out of the regulators and the policymakers that the banks are well capitalised. I think that's, you know, that's... It's probably the right way to think about it. But the problem is, is that, you know, the bank balance sheets are huge. Their their right, right. their compared to their assets is tiny. You only need right. sort of, <laughs> So to give you some idea, um, the, the, the kind of provisioning the banks are, are giving us now, if they're the three that we've got, is about 0.9% of, of assets. Um, in the GFC, where they all did need to raise capital, and we saw how hard that was for them, um, the provisioning got up to 1.6%, so bigger than what they're provisioning now. And in the early 1990s recession in Australia, it was 6.3%. Wow. So I would, I would say to you that if we get a, a recession like the 19, early 1990s with that kind of loan loss um, outcome, then we're in trouble. The banks are in trouble. They're not going to. They're going to wipe out their capital, and they'll have to raise a lot of new capital. And we will be talking about bailouts. Now, look, that early '90s recession was in the wake of our financial deregulation. It was a massive commercial property market bubble, and um, there was some particular reasons why the losses were so severe. But you know, it gives you some idea that we, you know, we're not going to be breathing easy for a little while yet, because you know the reality of banking, you know, for 200 years is their job is to get into partnership. They're not equity. They're debt in a partnership with a business and take a long view. And the hardest thing, the most important thing a banker does is decide when to pull the rug or not. And that's a conversation with the owners. And it says, you know, the, the debt holder, the bank, has a conversation with the equity holder, the owner, and says, business isn't viable anymore. And the debt is essentially just a call option over the assets of the business. So um, that's all the math that's going to be done over the next six months. And, and, and it's not whether something's right or wrong. I mean, every individual business case will be uh, a moral question for those businesses, particularly if the banker view differs from the owner view. Yeah. But the banker has to, you know, that's, that's what bankers get paid for is knowing when to support a business, when it's got a future versus when to, you know, stop out. <laughs> when, when it's, you know, it's good money after that. And it's a tough job. And the reality is Australian bankers haven't had a lot of practice at that. Because mm. we've been going pretty well in this country. That's what two generations of bankers who've probably never seen a recession, right? Yeah, well, you see, even the most senior bankers now talk about their faint memory of childhood of the last recession. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think I saw one of them. The, the guy will remain nameless. Um, I think he was in graduate program. Um, uh, Australia, Australia lost its generation of bankers hardened by the early right. '90s recession, probably between 2000 and. 2004. I mean, you got some guys on boards, people like Phil Cronican at the NAB. He's, uh, he's, he was uh, sort of cast in that mould during the early 90s. But, but that, look, that's my view on the on the role of banks. It's critical. We've just had a, a reporting season. That happened quickly for the banks, really. They've had to sort of wrap their head around this quickly. It'd be CBA will be the next update that will be meaningful. 
but you know we're also going to get to see the different business models so nab with its small business banking operation cba with its mortgage book you know you know anz that's just sort of small and everything um you know who's going to win and who's going to lose you know and, and all of them have got different capital bits so anyway that's going to be part of this this working out how bad it is over the next six months Mate, this, this interview is not going to be anywhere near long enough. I've already got about 84 questions that come out of your last statement, so I'm going to try and get through as many as I can. Okay, uh, I'll shorten the questions up. Answer them. <laughs> no, no, not all, not all. Just, I, there's so much great stuff here. You, I've only had a housing, though. You mentioned housing and when you talk about the CBA. You, you mentioned business banking. You mentioned the bankers needing to work out how much to carry. I want to come back to the provisioning on, on business loans. But I saw some numbers out today, and again, we're recording this on Wednesday the 6th, from ANZ saying they see a 10% property price fall. Um I don't know where that sits in terms of how many people go into negative equity and how quickly. I'm also mindful you've talked about unemployment and that necessarily has a flow on effect to household budgets, not the average budget, but the on the margins, those who can't afford on a single income or maybe no incomes to pay some of these mortgages back. I'm not a big fan of forecasts necessarily, but if you've got a house price forecast, I'll take one from you. Moreover, I suppose, how worried should we be about A, the housing market and then the housing market's impact on banking and therefore the economy? I think it's the one of the, one of the really important elements of the outlook that we don't have a good handle on um, because this is unique. Um, and I could give you a forecast where house prices are anywhere from unchanged to down 30%. So you drive your truck <laughs> right. through that bit. Um, so that's I'll take that range. Of, yeah. um, pretty useful, that one. Um, Look, the, 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 the shock now is all, all through the investor and rental market because the people who are losing their jobs, whether it's just for six months or whether it's longer than that, um, uh, are predominantly renters. You know, not all of them, but that's the, that's the sort of the, the, the bulk. Um, and that's where you're seeing the investor side, the Airbnb market. You know, all of that's coming through this investor side. And you, you sort of got a hint of that in today's housing finance numbers. Um, so at this stage, I think the owner-occupier market is probably... You know, broadly speaking, okay, in as much as it's actually operating as a market, given the restrictions on, and and just the appetite for anyone to do anything in this environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, this this is really the 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 the, uh, the the question over the profile for the downturn, which is we've had this initial shock as the restrictions around the health crisis ease. You know, we're going to see businesses open up. We're going to see people go back to work, and that'll take some pressure off that part of the housing market. But also the traditional model of a, of a recession means that you're going to see job losses continue across other parts of the economy over the year or more ahead. And that's where it becomes a broader-based issue. So um, I don't know what that looks like because I don't know the extent of the, the job losses in, you know, the broader services sector and the broader economy, but I've got this sort of reasonably nasty feeling it's not going to be good. I think we're going to be, you know, getting sort of putting to the side the way the ABS is going to treat the unemployment numbers for the next little while. But I think unemployment's easily going to go to effectively 10 to 12. And when it comes down, it'll only come down to eight to 10 and then it'll probably go back up again to 10. So I think I don't agree with the RBA view that unemployment's going to go to 10 and be at seven at the end of next year. I think it's going to go to 10, come down to sort of eight and then go back to 10. And if that's the right view, which it's, you know, I'm hoping it's not the right view, but that's what I'm sort of thinking then I think you're going to see the sort of the broader market which sort of remain under pressure right through this year into next. And on that on that basis, even though interest rates are zero, um, I think, um, and given the banks in that scenario are going to be under a fair bit of capital pressure, 
Um, you're not going to see a lot of credit flowing freely. Um, you know, and that's really been the environment for 10 years. So I think house prices will be sort of falling um, at, a, at a sort of a, a modest clip, you know, right through the next 12 months. So I, I could easily see down 20. And then, and that is going to be, you know, pretty bad. You know, we saw what down 15 to 17 in Sydney and Melbourne did over the last few years. So down 20, probably not going to be good. Um, so let me let me take that then back to your comment about the early 90s recession. You you started by saying we haven't seen anything like this in a, in a few hundred years, I think was the phrase you used. You then referred to the 1990s recession, which in theory is maybe, or maybe not better or worse than, than anything in the last couple of hundred years. If I kind of triangulate those comments, I mean, I'm not an optimist by nature. I'm not a dramatist either, but it feels to me like we could very well test, despite the fact, as you say, it came from a, a commercial property boom or bubble. Um, if, if anything's going to test those sort of levels, it feels like now. I mean, if this is, if this is unprecedented to the extent it is for a century or more, um, is this not the biggest potential kind of financial crisis we face? I don't call it a financial crisis in the wake of the GFC, but again, I don't want to be dramatic about it. I sound like I am being, but if I kind of triangulate that stuff, it feels pretty ugly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it gets to this point is, you know, initial shock, you know, closure of whatever it is, a quarter of the economy, 20% of the economy, as that opens up, assuming we can get through this thing over the next six months, you know, are we okay? Answer is might not be. There could be some broader damage to the economy, in which case um, this this could end up being, you know, quite a prolonged bad period for the economy. I mean, I think we're operating at 80 85% of the economy right now, which is phenomenal. Mm. And I think the the risk is, is that even when the restrictions sort of come off, we might sort of be 95%. And 95% is five down from the peak, which is a bad recession. Yeah. Right, so you know we're sort of getting we're going to get used to these big numbers. I mean, the equity market rallies when the ISM falls to thirty. You know, that's not a bad number. What's, <laughs> what's the bad number? Um, you, but we got to realise, you know, five percent fall in output in any recession in the last hundred years is severe, and and that that could end up being where we are. The reason I said the nineteen nineties could be worse in reference to banking was just because the high concentration of losses around commercial property. They were big ticket items. They caused a lot of losses for the banks, particularly a couple of them who will remain unnamed, but you can Google it. Um, and, um, you know, I don't, I, I can't imagine our overall loan losses um, getting to that point. If we got anywhere near that kind of loan loss in the, in the, in the banks in the next 18 months, then, you know, this is going to be the worst since the, you know, well, you know, this could go up there with the Great Depression in terms of economic impacts. All right, but I have to I have to I have to uh, correlate that by saying you don't think it'll be there, but that's how bad it could get if, if things do go the wrong way. Yeah, and I just think the line losses won't be that bad. I think the banks have got the capital, and 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 then it'll still be extremely sort of severe recession. There's no two ways yeah. about it. So I think what people aren't concentrating on now is that you know people have spent all this time six weeks wrapping their head around the nature of the shock, the the kind of shock it is, and you know I've done the exercise my. Myself, and I've been doing a lot of work on this, but then to extend through to, you know, beyond that, beyond the initial sort of, you know, government restrictions, health crisis type shock to what actually is the economic sort of situation that pops out of that. And it looks, you know, by any standard of the past sort of 20 or 30 years, pretty bad. You know, it looks, you know, we're going to have unemployment miles above where it was. Um, and, and, you know, sentiment damage too, you know. We're going to get some... 
bounce in some areas and, you know, there's going to be lots of different stories of strength. But, you know, we've got geopolitical deterioration. We've got a new economic nationalism that's only going to be reignited by this. We're going to have border controls lasting well into 2021, so international airline travel. Restructuring of consumer spending because they can't go on holidays, so they spend it on other things. There's a whole range of things going on here that's going to make it an extremely complex and difficult place. And and quite frankly, it's it's just not going to be a, um, a robust economy. This is going to be prone to shocks and other problems. I'm glad you're the bloke to do the forecast, not me, because that sounds like a very, very wickedly difficult task to try and pick away through this. Yeah, well, the RBA, when the you know, Phil Lowe came out and did his first forecast of that speech and said, you know, I'm using round numbers, you know, output down 10%. I mean, <laughs> what was the next rounding, 20%? Yeah, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere between 6 and 14, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. No one knows. And, yeah, this has been one of the sort of interesting things for me personally as someone who's been analysing the economy for 25 years mm-hmm. is, you know, it's like doing it blind, blindfolded. Yeah. You know, you've got no data and you can sort of see that. And, you know, it, it's it's been interesting to sort of draw all the lines and the dots and do the analysis. And, you know, coming from a markets background where you tend to have to do economic analysis quickly because you're aiding the price discovery process mm-hmm. um that was a very good training ground for for dealing with this shock um for being in financial markets because it's about you know trying to deal with ambiguity around information and make an assessment of the here and now Mate, you you talked about unemployment going to 10 then down the way then maybe back to 10 again that feels to me either like a double dip recession or a really long one um <laughs> i was i was hopeful maybe because i'm a born optimist i was hopeful that the, the confidence factor, once we all get to go back outside and back to the pub and back to the cafes and back to the shops, that, you know, some sort of, v, V-shape sounds too trite and it is, but I was hopeful that some sort of kind of, you know, uh, repressed, suppressed spending may well burst out and give us enough momentum, just almost, you know, that almost that kind of the, the, the momentum you need to get over the inertia of being stuck to give us some sort of progress. Is that way too Pollyanna? Look, I think so. I think, you know, there, there certainly will be that dynamic. There's no doubt. It's just that whether or not that's going to get traction um, because I'm thinking this is more about business investment, you know, the allocation of capital. Um, you know, there are going to be shifts in the way we do things, whether it's policy-induced or just consumer and business-induced. Um, we're fast-tracking digitisation. There's a, just a whole range of disruptive things going on that's, you know, things that we were dragging out over the past decade that are here and now in a matter of months sort of thing. So I, I just, I'm not sure that the, I know exactly what you're getting at and I think in, in, in general, sort of, you know, in the last, you know, 10 years, that's not a bad way to think about it. I'm giving the economy some momentum and that sort of starts the virtuous cycle. But I just think that the, the key here is, is is reigniting business investment and getting people into work is is going to is gonna be more of a grind. And right. so I'm not so much sort of a double dip recession in the sense that I don't think there's ever, you're ever going to leave it. <laughs> it's just, it's just going to look a little V-like as restrictions yeah. come down and we open up restaurants and start going to the theatre again. And, and that'll all happen gradually over the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. to the point where we can travel again. And, you know, at this stage, it's really hard to see when that might be, as in travel overseas. So I think it's not so much a double dip. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking W. I, I like that letter. Yeah, okay. uh, and then I've been looking at other, you know, alphabets to see what kind of letters I can come up with. And, um, <laughs> and I, I don't even know how to pronounce the name of the letters, so I won't bother. But, yeah, <laughs> W rather than double dip. But it is that concept, you know, initial yeah. shock, some recovery, but then actually the underlying forces at work are still pretty um, 
pr- pretty powerful and there's a big headwind there. So, you know, you're not, you're not up and running in 21 and full steam ahead. What drives that second bit of the W, mate? So things are bad now. We get out there, we start spending, things improve a little bit, then they unemployment particularly gets a bit worse again. What's the dynamic that you think is going to cause that? What do we, how do we think about that from a, just a general kind of economic positioning? So rather than thinking about the, the dip, the second dip, the second side of the W, just think about what the, 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 the pop-up is. And, you know, that's okay. why I don't think double dip recession. It's just that right, you're right, going to right. get some lifting growth that's, that's meaningful because you're, yeah. you're allowing restaurants to open. You're allowing, you know, cafes and um, hospitality sector. And then, you know, you're going to get cinemas and theatres and, you know, you're going to get people going back to work. Um, as I said, I don't think that gets you all the way back that process alone because people will be, you know, there'll be people whose jobs won't be coming back. There'll be less employment. Um, And in the background of this, as I was saying, there's this sort of normal cyclical dynamic where people are losing jobs in other sectors such as in, you know, manufacturing or banks because they're all madly trying to be as cost efficient as possible in this environment. And, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention and, you know, with the, 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 you know, digital technology, you know, you're going to find that businesses that were sort of dragging their feet around this stuff in the last five years are going to find, suddenly find how, the, you know, they can automate things, you know, in the office and they will need four right, people to buy. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to have yeah. a much weaker demand profile, higher unemployment. So it's not so much that it's the second thing that is a trigger to come down. It's just that when you get the bounce, it's going to be, you know, a pretty modest bounce. It might only be short-lived and, you know, you'll, you'll start to see these. Yeah. yeah, we're still in a sort of a, a, a cyclical downturn, if you will. Mm-hmm. Funny thing, too, about, about recession, mate, the labels and measurement, we have to, you have to pick some points to measure something. Uh, but I was saying to the guys in the office today that if the economy falls by 5%, then goes up 1%, we'd be officially out of recession despite the fact we're still meaningfully worse off than yeah. where we were a year or two ago, right? So there is some yeah. sense that looking only at the prior year, you know, being out of recession isn't the end result. If we're out of recession but unemployment's still 8 or 9%, clearly the economy's in more trouble than if we were in recession and unemployment was 6%, for example. There's there's something in the labelling, something in the naming that maybe doesn't tell the full story. Yeah, and that's really important for, you know, thinking about the, you know, really what we need to be doing is thinking about the five-year view where you're trying to value the share market or you're running government policy or you're thinking about where your business needs to invest and where it needs to shrink. You've got to take a five-year view and really, you know, this guy, the first thing we've got to do from an economy point of view is we've got to get the, get the economy off government life support, you know, because we're not going anywhere while there's wage subsidies um, floating around. Businesses have no visibility of their cost base, unless we decide, you know, we're all going to run with wage subsidies permanently. I would recommend against that, um, <laughs> despite the fact that some people think we can run budget deficits forever and, you know, we can have wage subsidies forever. And I think that's the Soviet Union, but anyway. Um, <laughs> We got to get rid of that, and 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 uh, you know, I totally agree with that schematic that a, a small bounce after a big fall, yeah, while welcome, I we're not falling anymore, is 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 not reflective of recovery. So the first marker really is when does output get back to the level it was in in, in December twenty nineteen, right? You know, and NAB in there, I, I didn't see if Westpac had it in their results, but NAB had it in their results, and that was at the end of twenty one. Um, and, you know, let's see what the RBA comes up with this week um, in their quarterly, because this will be the quarterly sort of detail from a, from a, government, um, a government forecaster. And, but that's the key. When do we get back to where we are? And then the next one is we've got to get trajectory. It's quite clear 
um, the government is going to take the strategy of trying to free the economy up and get it to grow its way out of this downturn strongly and grow its way out of the debt problem, which is, you know, the post-World War II sort of unleash the pent-up demand and investment and all that sort of thing. Right. Um, and if that's the case, then we've got to also be thinking about how do we supercharge productivity? Um, and in a way that, you know, this is going to sound sort of, you know, somewhat brutal, but, you know, the more you sort of clear out the cobwebs through this mm. process, the, the stronger you can bounce. Um, but that's going to be seen as inhumane and, you know, you got to, but yeah, this is part of the trade-offs, right? I mean, you know, we, we didn't want to, we just kept cutting rates. Not so much, it's not so much an RBA problem. It's more of a US or European or particularly European and Japan problem that you keep cutting rates because you want to, you know, minimize job losses. But if at the same time you're keeping zombie firms and you're stopping capital going to its most efficient use, you're not actually creating that high productivity world and, the reality is the global economy has been low productivity for a decade now. Mm. And we've, we're going to get it, make any headway into this debt. You know, sure we can inflate our way out of it, but we're not having much luck getting any inflation. But the other way is high productivity, create wealth, create um, the ability to pay the debt down, which is what happened in the fifties to, to most Western advanced economies. Of course, the Second World War was six years long, so let's hope we don't have to deal with six years of downturn to get that to get that boost at the other end, right? Well, it's funny. I mean, it, it, the economy, a lot of economists at the time, from what I've read, because yeah, I wasn't there, um, said that you know the economy is going to fall in a hole. All this war production, particularly in the US, and that there's you know going to get all these unemployed GIs, and it's all going to be a disaster mm-hmm. zone. But a bit of smart policy making actually unleashed a huge amount of pent up demand. Those factories were redirected back away from armaments and food, food production, uh, war production into domestic. You know, that really just started the consumer society yeah. of the 50s and yeah. 60s. And, 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 and we had a, a boom that, you know, it had a, you know, we had, you know, short, sharp little recessions every now and again in the 50s and 60s. But, you know, it was, it was a, a, a really positive bounce out of that. And, and look, that was six years. And that was a re-engineering of the modern economy in terms of manufacturing and everything. So, you know, mm-hmm. that we've got that opportunity now. It's not around manufacturing. It's around the services sector. It's around skills, digitization, future of work coming in. And, you know, I think it was great that Frydenberg this week mentioned skills right up there because that's going to be the key, skilling the labour. You know, it's not just applying labour to capital. It's about having skillful labour. Is there enough... I- the productivity question is, is the big one, I think, for economists the world over has been for a decade, as you say, since the GFC. And, and I have not seen a convincing solution. Maybe you have one, which would be great, so we can break the news here. Um, <laughs> there is so much there is so much new labour being directed towards service-type roles and, and even service, you know, define however you want to define it, but just that idea that, you know, there was once a time when you built a car with five men, then it was four men, then it was three men, then it was two because you had robotics and you made... You made that much more efficient in terms of production. That's where the productivity gain came from. If you're a personal care worker, you're a health worker, you're a social worker, per, per unit of output, there's only so much you can do, I think, at some level. Or maybe I'll make the statement, you can tell me why I'm wrong. It, I, I worry that there's not, you know, we're moving so far away from manufacturing right now. Is there enough room for productivity gains that we used to have in the modern economy? Is there enough left to digitise? I mean, there's always more, but given the preponderance of service workers, tourism, education, that kind of stuff, is there enough left in that space to give us that upside or are we permanently stuck in a low productivity world? 
Yeah, look, I, I'm not that. That is very grim. So let's not be too <laughs> grim. Um, uh, look, I can see what you're talking about vis-a-vis manufacturing and services, but I think there's a measurement issue, and and and, and economists in, and have been talking about this for 20 years that we're not okay. measuring the statistical agencies are not measuring productivity well, and it's because of the rise of services, and it's hard to measure it. It doesn't mean it's not there. Um, okay. It also doesn't mean that in the last decade productivity hasn't been, you know, low. Um, mm. But no, look, I think you, you, you know, you, you, you surprise yourself. You know, how do we how do we really know that there's limits to this? I think you can find that, you know, you know, think about the basic capability or the general capability of your average sort of office worker mm. um, around digital application software and, you know, some of them are okay but really, you know, you could really, really ramp that up. And so, no, look, I, I, I don't buy into that idea that, that we can't. I think that sure. there is huge amounts. Just whether we've got the appetite to do it. Because the hardest thing about productivity, you can see at an operational level, is the boss saying... You know, you've got to do this and you've got to, you know. And again, you know, we've had easy credit, easy access to money, which is diabolical for productivity. I mean, the mother, necessity is the mother of all invention is, is critical here. Pressure, and we are going to see pressure over the next year or two. And that is going to generate innovation. It's going to generate productivity gains. It's going to force managers to run their staff more effectively. Mm-hmm. So, no, I think we can. Um, I think we can bounce. I just don't think we bounce in a V mechanically, switch yeah, right. the economy off, switch it on. I think this is a genuine downturn. I think that there's a lot of stuff going on. And then I'm talking 2023, 24, 25, mm-hmm. bouncing strongly into sort of literally 3 4% real economic growth, you know, assuming nice. we keep, you know, back. yeah, assuming we can go back to that kind of immigration rate we had before. Mm-hmm. You know, we can get that growth and that, which is going to be productivity, but we've got to, you know, get some really sort of sensible policy changes, which is around, um, you know, flexibility in the economy, which is around skilling, um, and, and it's around capital allocation. You know, it's, it's not, it's, you know, the, the reality is, and, you know, we discussed it in January, I've been arguing for a number of years that it's in the presence of cheap money and low interest rates, Firms get lazy, you know, and they, you know, we're holding a lot of firms that are low productivity firms dragging the whole place down and, and, and they will get dealt with in this downturn because the magnitude of the shock is too big for them to avoid it. What's well, combination, right? You've got low productivity firms. Frankly, you've got just poor firms that haven't been tested because there's been so much money around both literally in terms of cheap money but even just in terms of economic growth, you know. Good economy. Yeah, it's not, not just anybody can survive, but it's not miles away from that. Well, there's ever, you know, increasing amounts of money being spent, invested. It's cheap enough to borrow it. You've got to, you've got to do, I mean, once you're established, you've got to do pretty well to go out of business in that kind of environment, right, relative to what maybe comes out of this, which is the strongest survivor. I've told the story a million times of Harvey Norman in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it, it became the category killer by simply being the one left after each successive shock. And you just get bigger by definition. That story's yeah. kind of gone. There hasn't really been a meaningful that I can think of anyway, a version of that in the last 20 years probably. I'm sure there must be one, but, those, the, you know, the Woolies and Coles, you know, those those things happened in the 70s, early 80s, maybe early 90s, but not much since. No, yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree with that. And, and, and you know, the the cheap money analogy, it runs right from the big end of town down. I mean, the, the prominence of private equity, I mean, that private equity yeah. is the hallmark of low interest rates and easy access to debt. 
And he goes and buys weak firms in the hope that either they can turn them around or sell them off. And or leverage them up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or put some lipstick on them, you know. Um, so that for me is, you know, a sign of where our monetary policy went wrong. And obviously it's not RBA. I mean, they did their best to fight this because, you know, if they had kept their rates at a good level, the currency would have gone through the roof because everyone else was doing it. It's the Japanese who started it, the Europeans who bought into it, the Americans tried to fight their way out of it and made some good progress with, you know, tapering and then getting pay down on QE and then raising rates. Um, but, you know, we all got dragged into it. And I think this has got to form part of the conversation is what do we do with monetary policy? Because I, I just don't think the the targets of the past are, 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 are going to work. They haven't been working for a while and they've, they've created some real problems. And look, We'll know more about that in the next six months, as I said, when we find out what the banks have got to deal with. If it's as bad as I suspect, then there'll be a bit of um, soul-searching on what went wrong. I mean, I think we talk about this in January as well, but I think the other thing I, I'm concerned about is the absence of fiscal policy. I mean, we, you know, we, we talk about the RBA, what they should or shouldn't have done. They, they, to whatever degree, felt like they had to do something. I can only assume, and frankly, both Governor Stevens and Lowe weren't exactly quiet about this in their own bureaucratic way of saying, guys, we're doing everything we can. We kind of need some help here. And it seemed like there was the cross-arm salute from everybody else while the RBA felt like they were the last adult in the room to do something. Is that too too strong a, a view? No, I think that's right. I mean, look, I don't know whether the RBA was literally saying, you know, two, three, four years ago, fiscal stimulus. I think they were more on the let's do um, let's let's do some infrastructure investment or let's get some reform happening, let's make things sure, more sure. flexible. Yeah. That sort of thing. I mean, unfortunately, whatever fist, I mean, there's nothing like a global pandemic to, to, to alleviate the memories of what went wrong. But, I mean, unfortunately, whatever you view on fiscal rectitude and maintaining balanced budgets is, is that this shock is going to be used, at least by the, the, the coalition, as that was the right strategy because, look, we had the, the firepower to go and do this. So I think, I think, never I think actually did say so in the National Press Club meeting yesterday, the day before, from, I think exactly what he said, wasn't it? That's exactly what he said. So they're sort of saying, you know, as his, his, his uh, politicians are good at, is to, is to, is to rewrite history to make themselves look good. Um, and look, there's some truth to it too. I, I don't yeah, completely, yeah. I don't completely think it's wrong. I think, you know, the re, you got to remember. I think you know, Japan massive government debt, but you know, they've got virtually no household debt. You know, whereas Australia has big household debt. Um, and the government, you know, if the government ran massive debt at the same time as the household was, uh, you know, we're trying to run debt, then, you know, it would, it would, it, it wouldn't all work out. So there's, there's structural issues, and I think Australians, you know, from a from a, a political perspective, generally are supportive of governments, you know, you know, not getting too out of whack. I mean, I think they support what they've done in the last six weeks, and you know, the, <laughs> that wage subsidy, there was nothing uh, timid about that. Um, I know there's people calling that it should have been extended. I'd argue that maybe they went a little bit too far. There's a lot of people okay. getting a lot of money that they wouldn't necessarily be getting otherwise. I mean, there's a lot of people getting paid 1500 bucks every two weeks that might have otherwise only been earning, you know, 500 and were happy to earn 500 mm-hmm. Um Anyway, whatever the case may be, the government went in hard and, and, and I think we're going to find that they put a pretty good floor under household income uh, through their actions. And, and that, of course, is one of the key things to stop this thing in the short term anyway, turning really nasty. And so they have to be applauded for that. Well, I've, I've, I've said the same thing. I, I'm, I'm, you can argue about the individual bits and pieces and whether it was too much, too little, too fast, too slow. But generally speaking, the approximate quantum seems about right. The speed was 
about as fast as governments can do things. And we knew it was going to take a month because just these things have to when governments are involved. But it seems like, you know, you'd have to be pretty narky to, to, to find, you know, in the absence of, there's always things to change, but overall the general quantum direction timing is about right, would you, would you say? Yeah. yeah, totally. And, you know, you can't, you can't, this is the thing about the fiscal policy is that you can't make it perfect because it would take like six months of debate and everyone around the table having their own view on what perfect <laughs> looks like. Um, yeah, when, 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 they, when they execute a rate cut, um, not everyone whose variable interest rate comes down is under household, you know, financial right, pressure. Right, right. Uh, yeah, you know? I mean, you've got to think of it like that. So if you want to do macro policy, yeah. a lot of yeah. people are going to get it who don't want it. You should try to minimize that because it's in the name of wasting taxpayers' dollars, but you can't. And, and the fact yeah. is, this idea of an activist cyclical fiscal policy, you know, is, is dangerous because... You know, it, it, it distorts things all over the place. The best thing we can do is create the structure for a healthy private sector. I mean, I think a couple of hundred years of history have shown that. It's prone to shocks. It's prone to having problems, which the government needs to help manage. But, you know, the government's in and it's got to get out. And the reality is, is having, you know, all these problems with these fiscal packages is, is a good reason to get rid of them as quickly as possible because yeah. they're not put and you don't want to sustain them because they're not fair. I mean, the only principle of fairness that Morrison put forward on this, which is, I think, a good one, is it's fifteen hundred bucks for everyone, you know. Yeah. And fifteen hundred bucks for you know people living in different parts of Australia or people who right. are working different hours is a different proposition. But you know, they said one definition of fairness: fifteen hundred for all. But that's not perfect, and you know, it's an incentive to get rid of it as soon as possible. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you in the treasurer's chair in a minute. Before I do, I have a a theory, I'm not just here to have you confirm my theories, feel free to disagree with them, but I, I, I think we're pretty lucky to have had the GFC before this pandemic. And why I say that is because regulators, governments, um, you know, everyone involved in, in moving as quickly as they needed to do the things they needed to do. Uh, you know, we had half of the world try austerity in 08, 09, the other half of the world try stimulus. We, we, we saw the impacts of both. We kind of, we kind of, it wasn't exactly a dress rehearsal, but it was bad in and of itself. But I kind of feel like we'd still be discussing it now had we not been through the GFC and had that so clearly in people's memories. Is that, is that a too easy a reading of history? Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's some, some, some real merit in the arguments. I mean, the, at the very least, going back to my story about the banks, I mean, if the banks right. were carrying right now the kind of capital and liquidity um, that they had in 2007, and I'm not so much talking about Australia, I'm thinking more globally, but, but even here... Um, I actually think this this could be a financial crisis right now. Right. The fact that they're, they're carrying so much of both. I mean, I, I don't know how closely you're watching markets, but given that I see on TV every day, I'm sure it was reasonably closely. Um, in, that, in that panic phase in March, the markets were just totally dysfunctional. Yeah. I, mean, I did an academic in, at UTS in the finance discipline group she used to be a trader in Macquarie Bank and has come across and is working as an as, as an academic and got a doctorate. And she pulled out all this data on bid office spreads and volumes and everything. And every metric that she had was worse than during the GFC. Um, wow. So, you know, so, yeah, that's not saying that we didn't learn from it. It's just saying the amount of pressure that was yeah. put into the system because of the quickness of this shock. It was a stop. Mm -hmm. which, you know, downturns and economic shocks aren't usually so sudden. Now, if the banking system hadn't been quite as resilient as it is, who knows how this could have spiralled out of control. It could have turned into a financial crisis. But thankfully, it's settled down. Central banks have acted. That's the other thing. 
central banks have learned how to act quickly. Yeah. So we've, 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 and governments to some extent. I mean, how long did the TARP program in the US take to get put in place in 2008? I mean, it took them about three goes at Congress, I believe. Whereas, you know, packages this time were just yeah. within the work. Yeah. So, look, your point's well taken. I'm not so much sure about the consumer and business as such. I mean, I think, you know, we had a bad recession in 91. So, you know, we're, we're pretty, you know, senior business people should have seen things before. Um, de- definitely from a banking and a policy perspective, we in much better position because of what happened in 2009, 2008. Nice. All right, so I'm going to throw you in uh, Treasurer Frydenberg's chair for a couple of minutes. Firstly, I want to get your thoughts. So we, we've, we've both agreed that broadly the approach was right and the programs are what they are. I, I will though, ask you to reflect on some of the things between the job seeker, job keeper, the kind of cash being thrown at businesses, the rage of super, um, I, I like to call it, um, changes. Um, what, what of... Ha- of that that's been done, what of it are you most supportive of, most, I'll say critical of, I don't, again, we can agree that it broadly is the right general approach. What would you have done differently to this point? Um, look, I think the, I wouldn't have gone the super route just because I think it's opened a Pandora's box. I think half the inquiry around withdrawing money from super has uh, got nothing to do with financial distress. It's a reflection of people who think they shouldn't have their money taken away from them and locked up for 20 years and we've sort of successfully kept a lid on that. Um, you know, we might have started a conversation there that, you know, we might not have wanted to have, but, you know, I don't know. Well, that remains to be seen. I would have just left that because I'm not sure that it's material. I would have tried to maybe find another way to do it. I'm not saying that I'm a massive believer in super or anything. I mean, I actually think it's a great stimulus package could have been cutting super payments and just boosting everyone's wages for six months or something like that. Uh, that could have been a different approach. But, anyway, that's one thing. That doesn't help the unemployed, of course. Um uh, in terms of uh, the wage subsidy, um, you know, they were caught a little bit on the hop. Their misstep was to think they could use the social security system. Um, and when they announced the doubling of Job Seeker, you know, mm. the doll, mm. you know, we just, that gave business a green light to just lay off workers. And, right, okay. that's, and that's where we saw those queues emerge, right, in Centrelink yeah, right. on that Monday morning. And that's when everyone, you know, I think that's when the, 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 the sort of the, the fear came it really came into it from a macro perspective is oh my god what's happening here now this is mass unemployment so the wage subsidy was really important they probably should have you know not rejected that i, I have a sneaking suspicion that might have been had a, a touch of ideology to it because mm. um, you know these guys hate that stuff and you know fair enough too it's a free market economy you know i think wage subsidy should only be used in the most severe of circumstances. But I think they probably did too much. I mean, it's almost like, you know, they got them over the line to do wage, to do a wage subsidy and then they just say, okay, well, we're going to do it, let's do it properly. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you know what happened. The, the side, the left of politics goes, okay, we'll expand it, you know. I mean, God, yeah, before, yeah. the politicians would be on it before long if, you know, the, some people had their life. Um, so, look, I think that I would have probably... Cut it, you know, not made the differential to job seekers so much. Um, and, you know, some, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't have, you know, Treasury sitting at my beck and call. Um, but if there was in the time available, just a way to not so much make it targeted, but just reduce the amount of people who are going to get it who don't need it. And I think yeah. we're going to find out that somewhere between 15% and 30% of payments were, you know, basically corporate welfare. 
Yeah. And it will be corporate welfare because, you know, I I can't see the business person who gets it who otherwise would have been employing those staff going, oh, well, maybe the customer or the staff member should get it. (laughs) No, that's good. So that's it. But I don't know how they would have done that in that period of time. But if they had been a bit more open to it earlier, they might have had an extra week to think through it. But in terms of um, uh, the, the shape of the program, I think having hard stops on this stuff is dangerous. Okay. So everything's programmed to finish in September. Yeah. And yeah. if we do that, we're just going to have another economic hit then uh, because yeah. I can tell you from speaking to business money mid-size enterprises that, you know, they're going to keep staff and a lot of them have brought staff back on the payroll. But that in September, if the economy, I mean, unless it's miraculously back to where it was, which it won't be, um, yeah. you're going to have to lay off staff. So they need to taper JobKeeper. If they're going to reduce JobSeeker, they need to do it gradually. You know, they need to phase these things. Mm-hmm. I suspect they buy that argument now. I think part of the reason they had a hard <laughs> stop today was a legislative simplicity, i.e. just putting it in, and a bit of ideology, i.e. we're going to get rid of this as quickly as we can. Yeah. I think if they're looking at easing back restrictions, one of the things that's dangling in the back of their minds is actually starting the tapering early. So rather yeah. than tapering from September to December, start if the economy is looking better and we've got retail open and everything, maybe sector by sector they can identify some way of tapering it from July to July to September and cheapening up the program and reducing the, 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 the hit on debt. But that might be too complicated. Yeah. Yeah. When you say taper, do you mean the people who are qualifying for it or the amount that's being paid or both? Yeah, so so at the moment JobKeeper is 1500 every fortnight. If you just stop that and go to zero, then you know, people will get laid off, I'm sure. Yeah. So what you do is for three months you take it down to 1200 then for the following yeah, right. three months you take it to 800 because it's essentially a subsidy, right? So, you know, you've got to, you've got to reduce it as the economy picks up because it's not mm-hmm. – the economy might have stopped on a – you know, like a F1 car, you know, on full brakes. Yeah. But it ain't going to take off like, you know, the start of a race. It's it's yeah, going right. to be grind out. So you can't just stop these programs or else you're going to have a another shock to the economy because they're so substantial too, you know. Mm-hmm. The job keeper is a third of all private sector wages. That's phenomenal. It is, and that's including bank CEOs. So, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, not that they're going to get it, but I'm just saying the wage yeah. bill... Yeah. For six months is probably going to be about three hundred and sixty billion, and they're paying and they're paying one hundred and thirty of it. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, so it is. It's a phenomenal. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's probably a little bit big. Um, they probably didn't know mm-hmm. they need to go quite so big. But anyway, I, I look, I think they've done what they've done. It was genuine emergency. You know, this was this was real time emergency. Uh, uh, activity, you know, they, they, they had no no time to ponder the fine tuning of this, and I think they have to be applauded because I, I, you know, we can say that they misstepped by not doing the wage subsidy from the start, but I'd actually argue they did something even bigger. They ideologically pivoted in the middle of a, you know, and 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 that to be applauded. I mean, it's just like investment, right? If you've got it wrong, you get out. Anyone who you know. Keeps a losing position is going to lose, and they they change, so they got to be applauded for that. So you know, it's funny. I, I think we talk about Treasurer Frydenberg uh, when he was at the National Press Club. He also said something I can't remember the exact quote, but somebody online said I was I was speaking to him Howard the other day, and he said that something it was something like no one's an ideologue in an emergency or yeah, ideology is the first casualty of emergency. It was very much exactly that point. Yeah, yeah, and look, I'm surprised he he talks about that. Maybe he's talking to his base. Um, right, yeah. because, you know, 
the fact that you're suspending, you're having to say that you're suspending ideology tells me that, well, then you're full of ideology normally. Um, one, of the great, one of the great things about Australia is our pragmatism. We can load ourselves yeah, yeah. up with principles and we all have strong beliefs, but when it comes down to it, Australians are pretty good at doing what needs to be done. Um, and uh, that's why we tend to, to do well in, in sort of crisis environments. And, and, you know, I think the health crisis piece, you know, Australians behave, you know, we, we talk about all the stories of misbehaviour. And the government's responding to that, whether it's a Bondi Beach or Queensland a few days ago. But, you know, 99.5% of Australians behave really well and they sacrificed a lot to do the right thing. And I don't think, you know, as a macroeconomist, I'm more interested in the 99.5% than the 0.5%. Maybe the 0.5% for the police. <laughs> I think that's a really, that's a really, I mean, it bears, it bears uh, repeating because... That is the story, right? The story isn't the exceptions. The story is the rule. I saw I saw some uh, graphs of different countries kind of, you know, we're all about the curve these days. Everyone knows what the curve is. I saw uh, it was must be 12, 15 countries on a, on a single you know, piece of virtual paper with the different sizes, shapes, and curves. And I mean, our, our curve at the back end is looking about the best in terms of the shape of that, the flatness of that. But just about any other developed country, even some of the non-developed countries, it's, it's a really, really, it seems like, I mean, hesitate to say it now it just gets uh, recorded for posterity but it seems like we're you know we're doing remarkably well both in terms of behavior as you say and the result of that which does give me some hope that we do end up with some economic recovery sooner than maybe even three weeks ago we might have imagined yeah look i hope that's the case the thing that worries me about that schematic and i don't i think that's fine to be thinking like that and it could well be the case let's hope so the problem is i don't think we pay enough attention to the fact that the australia and new zealand could well just be benefiting greatly from the fact that this struck in our summer. Yeah, this thing is super contagious and it's mainly transmitted through, you know, coughing and sneezing. You know, the the surface stuff is not as powerful as we worried about at the start. And what that tells me is the fact that at the end of an Australian summer after everyone's done 50 laps of Bondi Beach a day for six months, our immune system's up, we don't have colds, and therefore, the ability, despite Ruby Princess and you know half the world's ocean liners parked out of our doorstep, um, we seem to have got through it remarkably well. And I'm not okay. quite sure that it's just because our policy stance was more effective. I've, I think the real risk to this whole thing um, is we, we we ease back, we pat ourselves on the back, and we get the second wave. And as we saw in the Spanish flu 100 years ago, it was the second wave that got it and that was the worst one globally. And we've got to get through our window when Australians do have some, you know, bad immune systems because yeah. they're cold and, you know, they don't get outside as much. I'd argue that by locking us up for the last four weeks, our immune systems are going to be down anyway. Okay, yeah. Uh, more, more than seasonally because we're not doing the same things. We're not as happy as we, we normally would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But by, by June, July, we're going to start getting a lot more coughing and sneezing. If that's just as they're opening up public transport, you know, pubs, parties, public transport, I'd add in drunk people, but that was another P. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, um, yeah, so we, yeah, but we got to just get through our winner, you know, and I think the real risk to Australia is to, to that, to that, you know, that schematic that we've done well and we're going to bounce quickly. The risk is we get hit by a second wave Mm -hmm. and, uh, we, we, you know, this, this, this what we're seeing, 
Europe and America is severe. It's super contagious. And I don't think we can take that for granted. Thanks, right. Mate, um, so let's, let's look forward now. While you think about the future, possibly second wave, let's hope not, but very possibly, as you as you rightly point out. Think about economic policy from here. So again, let me put you back in Treasurer Frydenberg's seat. You've already talked about the tapering of JobKeeper. Um, what else do you think needs to be done now and in the future? If you Again, if you had the controls for today and then for another three months, what, what are you doing differently or what are you doing more or less of? What's the, you know, Warren Hogan is pressure or what are you doing to kind of put your economy in the best possible shape to get us out of this? Well, I, I think for the next three to six months, it's still just managing our way through this this health crisis. So I think really the six month view is the right one. Um, as I just said, if we if we get too complacent, we risk you know a second wave. Um, so I think you know you you know the, the, and, the, and the treasurer is doing a good job on this. And he said we're going to continue to do whatever we can to support business. And I think Nev Power was talking about you know even helping small businesses like cafes and restaurants with working capital and being, again, the Australian pragmatism coming through, you know, identify a problem, see if we can work out a solution. And, and look, you know, they've, they've written such big checks, you know, I think, you know, they, they, they're going to, they're going to be generous in, in, in supporting the economy through this. But I think the, the next six months is, is, is all about setting the foundation for the recovery. And I think understanding what the damage done is, and, and that gets back to this point I made at the beginning, you know, we've got to think about what was going on, at, you know, before the, this happened. You know, the Australian economy was hardly growing. You know, I mean, we had a discussion about how I thought it was going to be a better year ahead, and I still think that was the right perspective. Um, but, you know, it's not a vibrant economy. And, you know, there's a lot of question marks on why productivity is low and um, why business investment soggy. And, you know, and then we need to look at the Australian characteristics and what the rest of the world's doing. So there's a complex world out there. And I think in the end, I think the, 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 the current policy strategy, which is we've got to get the private sector fired up again. And then what does that mean? Well, what what does the next 10 years mean? And I think the world is at a point where we need to think seriously about some big nation building infrastructure, whether it's in the digital space or in, you know, agricultural space. Okay. Australia is is absolutely gifted. We have the world, you know, massive amount of natural resources the world wants, whether it's energy, metal, agriculture, so we've got to look at this new industry policy. We've got to look at how we can make sure we make the most of that natural endowment, not just send the raw product out and then let other people add all the value. Yeah, um, yeah. So we've got to get some flexibility back. You know, we, I'm a big believer in regulation in a free market economy, but, you know, we've also got to, you know, especially in, a, in, a, in an environment where we've got a lot of spare labour, which I suspect we'll have, you know, you've really got to ramp up business investment and get them employing people. So... I think the skills piece, I think the labour market flexibility, I think infrastructure, I'm a big believer in all of those. I, I have a, a bit of a frame that I'm thinking about in terms of what was going wrong before. And the big thing that was going, I mean, going wrong was that we weren't, you know, we can talk about benefiting from free markets and open trade, and that's true, but now we've got 40 years and we've learned something. And the big thing we've learned is that our competition is getting support from their governments. You know, China, Thailand, Vietnam are supporting capital to come there and invest. We don't do that enough. In fact, if anything, we've got a foreign investment review board, which, you know, can often go the other way. So what we've got to do, I think, is um, try and get capital here. But I think, importantly, support Australian capital in these industries. I've been doing some work with food and grocery. Our food industry is about to fall over, or parts of it. You know, we have 
we have a very fragile food manufacturing base um, that is right on the edge and we'll, we'll be putting more work out on that over the next few months. But that in critical industry pieces, it. And then the other one is the, the commodity curse, the currency being really high. So, you know, this idea that you sell a lot of mineral resources, it pushes upward pressure on your currency and that hurts all your other industry. How do we combat that? And this is going to sound radical, but we need to look at an export tariff. You know, people oh, okay. want our primary resources. They want our, they want it, you know. I mean, I, I don't think we have to sit there and beg for people to buy it. We can remove the tariff if the environment changes, but while all these emerging countries are coming through, putting infrastructure in place and have much bigger energy demands, put an export tariff on, that'll take pressure off the currency, that'll raise money for the government to invest in our industries to compete. And then the other one, the reason we want to take some heat off the currency is, you know, just because the rest of the world f follows bad monetary policy, do we have to? And the answer is, well, sort of, yeah, we do, or else our currency will go through the roof. So what can we do on that front? And I'm not talking about currency intervention because that doesn't work, but we've got to look at that. So, look, I'm a, a big, you know, supporter of the, the broad strokes of what the government's starting to say, but I think there's also some radical stuff in that, that deals with the problems we had before and starting with uh, an export tariff is, is I think, an, an important one. Mate, is export tariff code for increased resource royalty tax? Are they one and the same thing in your mind? Obviously, only for exports, but is, is that effectively what it is, just simply charging it more per tonne of iron ore, per ounce of gold, per whatever? Is, is that effectively what we're talking about? Yep, could be, yep. yep. I mean, it's obviously going to have slightly different consequences and so forth, but, yeah, it is. It's essentially... Um, it is, is, it's aimed at not just, you know, it's not about revenue raising as such. It's, it's, it's aimed about slowing down the amount of stuff we sell because, yeah, right. you know, you know, it's a, it's a judgment call and, and like every industry will be different. And of course people in those industries will now basically want to, you know, silence me and bury me from here on Correct. in. So, um, <laughs> yeah. I was never here yeah. for anyone asked, mate. Yeah. They're going to invite me to Kalgoorlie because it'll be my last stop. Um, <laughs> Let me show you the super pit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can make your own way out. Um, but no, look, I don't think it's massive. But it, I, look, I, I don't, the, the, I haven't done the analysis and there's people who can do it, but it's just about taking some of the heat, spreading the resources sales out a bit. And when we're talking about it, we're talking about taking a little bit of the heat out. Yeah, we're not talking about knocking iron ore sales down by 20% or 50%. We're talking about 5 or 10 and raising some revenue and taking a bit of strength out of the currency at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, yes, you're going to get your Gina Reinhardt's and your Twiggy Forests and your Birch Bees and everyone vehemently opposing this, but it's nothing like the super profits tax. It's not, yeah. nothing of that magnitude. Yeah, right, right. I, uh, I'm on record as agreeing with you, I think, if we're – taking a, a, a finite resource out of the ground, it should be benefiting the rest of us as much as it benefits the, com the countries that are taking it out, the companies that are taking it out in the first instance. Yeah. I think there's there's two reasons for that. I, I, I guess it leads to the next question. I'm also on record as saying, I think we should have a sovereign wealth fund. Would you see some of that money go to that sort of use or are there other better places for the extra cash it might raise? Yeah, look, I mean, that's that's fine. I mean, look, I think we probably need to get our budget back in order or at least somewhere remotely resembling in order before worrying too much about a sovereign wealth fund. I mean, yeah, we could... Fair point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that was a perfectly good... I mean, I, I, I said years ago that when we went through the, the first commodity price boom between 2003 and 2008, that yeah. if we hadn't have done all the adjustments to taxes and middle-class welfare and just, you know, basically banked it, we'd have had a sovereign wealth fund of... Well, by now it probably would be uh, worth, you know, well, 
one, one and a half trillion. It depends on what your asset allocation yeah. is in a bunch of stuff. I mean, you actually, but anyway, uh, look, I, I think, think you know, the, the, yeah, I think going back to what you said before about the, the, the export tariff and royalty taxes, it, it's not so much about Australian, every Australian should benefit more from it. Cause I think it does trickle down for lack of a better word in some respects. So I think that's, not quite the right argument. I can see that argument as being morally sound. What I'm arguing is that those industries through their success don't harm the rest of us. And that's what they're doing. They're putting upward pressure on the currency and hurting our manufacturing base, which is now finding is meaning that our food security is jeopardised. We don't manufacture a single motor vehicle, apart from the fact that Australian designers were some of the best in the world and they've only just decided to shut down the Ford design team because it's, you know, et cetera. <laughs> the other thing we've learned in the last 15 years is that once you lose the connections, they're gone. And that design team, you know, literally one of the best in the world, but it was a long way away and remote and sitting there. And it, 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 it you know, I don't know the story, but I'm sure it, it sort of wilted on the vine to some extent. So, you know, I don't want to see those mining companies, you know, you know, super profits. It's got to be everyone's, you know, they can have a fair shake of the sauce bottle, but I don't want to see them hurting us through, yeah. you know, the fact that we can't do anything else because we're just a pit. Um, and if you spray out that finite resource over a longer period of time, or if you take some extra revenues of it, or whatever the case may be, it takes some heat out of the currency, and I think that's a good thing. The greenies will love it too. <laughs> I guess we've got to wait. Similarly, the wealth, the, the sovereign wealth fund. Do we have to wait until we get back in our feet to start to do stuff like that? Now, I mean, is it does it just make things harder GDP-wise if we try and do it before we get back into positive territory? Well, it's just whether or not you want to accumulate a government asset position while you've while you've got a deficit. You know, is the yeah. you know, see, oh, do, do, do you want to go and buy Westpac shares while you've got a mortgage, or do you just pay off the mortgage? I mean, do you want to leverage balance sheet? So, so I just saw a statistic put together by a non-economist sort of mob, and and Singapore has the third highest government debt in the world as a percentage of GDP. Yeah, but yeah, they own half of Singapore, so their net debt is actually negative. It's kind 40. of manageable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but yeah, is Australia Singapore Inc.? No, it's not. We're not going to, yeah, should we leverage our federal government balance sheet? I don't know. I mean, look, the big next big policy question is going to be nationalisation. Yeah, if this recovery is too slow, if Frydenberg and Morrison have a crack at a private sector-led, let's re you know, reignite the private sector economy, but that doesn't work. If this thing's harder, then the left side of politics argues hard about sort of, you know, a socialist solution. Mm. Part of that is going to come with nationalisation of utilities and so forth. And, and look, you know, I think the frame of reference here about reform, the starting point, you know, is is not so much, oh, well, let's pull out all the old policy tools that was what Governor Lowe recommended. I, it's all been written before. What you need to do is think about, we had a massive reform program, substantial, wide-ranging, that had significant positive influence on our society in the last 30 years. Yep. Let's go now and look back and find out as of, you know, February 1, 2020, mm. what had worked and what hadn't and have a think about that. And I think, you know, the loss of manufacturing was one of the things, you know, how we managed the displacement of workers, we could have done better. You know, there's a whole range of things and then try and improve on those. But, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The reality is that free market economy that and the private allocation of capital was just a hugely important factor in getting this place moving and creating wealth. And, 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 I, and I think we, should, we shouldn't be reversing that. I think what we've got to do is just work out where we sort of can, you know, fine tune. 
Yeah, good point. Mate, uh, last, last serious question. Um, you mentioned immigration a bit earlier and, and we've seen Senator Keneally come out, we've seen the government come out in response. Immigration has become a hot button. You talk about economic nationalism. It feels like everything's coalescing kind of around this question again. Um, uh, you know, the, the question posed almost rhetorically, I think, and I'll, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, editorialising a little bit here, was, you know, do we want... Do, when immigration restarts, do we really want it? How much do we really want? And, or was it a fair go and a first go for Australians? A nice little political tagline. Immigration as a contributor or detriment to economic growth, mate. Where, where does the economist rather than the politician stand on that? How do you see immigration as part of our economic future? Okay, so the, the simple metrics, the, the the spreadsheet of this is yeah, immigration adds to growth, you know. Okay, let's add a layer of sophistication to it and say, okay, people from middle and lower income countries who take a bit of time to adjust might actually not add a lot for the first few years. And some would argue from lower income countries actually cost us a little bit. But in the long run, I'd actually even argue in the medium term, immigration adds to growth. So that's it. You know, there's no immigration at worst costs the government a little bit of money in the short term, but it's it's meaningless compared to its longer term contribution. So look, if go for growth is important, which it seems to be given that we've given ourselves a big debt mountain to take on, um, then you know, you'd have to seriously think about why you'd want to cut immigration back. And then you get to the, the, the first cut of analysis, which is where Keneally's coming from. And this is just lefty union 101. Uh, which you referred to, which is, you know, they're going to take jobs ahead of Australians, you know, which, yeah, I mean, she's going to be advising Trump next. Um, yeah, if that's the way they're going to play it, then that's, yeah, that's like 1960s, 70s stuff, right? So uh, I think there's there's a social um, and environmental and global need to have a think about, you know, you know reflect on actually the fact that, I've never seen the moon like I've seen it in the last few weeks. You know, the environment's been yeah, taking right. a great relief from this stop in humanity. You know, is there, is there something in this, you know, and, you know, should we be moving around so much? Should the, the, the you know, the interconnectedness be so punchy? I mean, I, I don't think international airline travel is going to go to where it was um, as at the end of 2019 for years. I mean, right. you know, it'll, yeah, it just, I think there's just going to be a little bit more... We, we, we really just sort of did what we wanted in a way and, and, and migration was part of it. So I think there's a, there's a, an argument to say we could probably peel it back a little bit, but that's I just think that's, you know, just to be a little bit more, you know, controlled in the way that we're, we're, we're going about things from a global perspective. But, look, I, I think it would be madness for Australia to reverse its immigration strategies significantly and I think we're going to find out one of the reasons this is, is going to be, you know, again, a, a hard recovery and we're not going to get much of a substantive V-shape or the W as we talked about is because we're going to go from having an extra, you know, two or 300,000 people come into this economy each year to probably falling three or 400,000 this year and probably falling 200,000 the next. And Australia hasn't experienced a fallen population. I mean, I don't even know. I would have, right. I'd have to yeah. look at it. And that's going to, that's, that's, that's material. That's sales at every supermarket. That's Harvey Norman sales. It's house demand. I mean, you know, as for rental, I mean, that could be a disaster for, for part of an emerging disaster for the rental market. So, so immigration, I think, would be very cautious to cut it back too hard. Very and good. I, but I'm not advocating. Uh, go on, say again. I, I wouldn't advocate to ramp it up. I think we were we were the highest, you know, highest population growth country in the world. Yeah, you know, okay. literally. Um, and I think, you know, we were running probably above a sustainable rate. Um, so, so, you know, definitely shouldn't be ramping it up.
It's, uh, it would be tempting, I imagine, so there's some quarters to, to give a little bit of a one or two year bump to that. I mean, if you could double immigration for a couple of years, you might you might solve a whole lot of problems, at least in the in the short if you add to some decent demand, could you? Or is that is that too easy? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a great project for some people in Treasury to work on, actually, right now. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, you know, does that work? Because, you know, there are right. you know, costs associated with it. And yes. you'd hate to think you're going to give your economy a kick by doubling immigration and bringing, like, you know, literally a million people into the country, which I'm sure if it's all part of Australia getting through this pandemic, well, there'll be strong demand to come here. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and so you get the people, but, you know, just be clear that actually it'll do what you want it to do and that's help the economy in the short term because that's part of the strategy, right? I mean, I suspect there's a, there's a chance that a short, sharp hit of immigration that's not well managed could actually be detrimental in the short yeah. term, yeah. like public housing requirements and stuff. Mate, let me wrap up by uh, somewhere where we started. I guess you talked a lot about kind of moving forward, what things look like. Just give me a, a quick temperature check on how our listeners should be feeling about the economy and the prospects for the economy and just, you know, looking out one, two, three years, how, how should they be going from listening to this particular podcast and thinking about the economy, the markets, not so much their individual jobs, but just where, where are we at? What's, what's coming? Oh, we kind of started that way, but just give me a quick, a quick recap of, you know, the Warren Hogan view on, on okay. the Australian economy and how we should be feeling. Okay. So as of, you know, early May, um, 2020, I think the, the, the time frame is the next six months and that's hard and there could be some real big hits, you know, to the market, to the economy, to unemployment. So prepare for some bad news ahead and not just, you know, the economic data on what we've seen. We know that payrolls this week is going to be bad. I'm talking about, you know, some nasty stuff coming out of the banks, the share market taking another hit. So caution remains order of the day for the short term. The grind out could be could be tricky. So 21, late 2020 into 21 and even 22, you know, is going to be a grind. There's going to be a lot of political debates. Hopefully they get some reform in there. Hopefully they get some new policy settings and we really sort of set the foundation for what I believe our, really what uh, the, the, the listeners should be thinking about um, is we can set ourselves up for strong growth for a vibrant economy and more importantly, a new economy, you know, a much more digitally enabled, um, a turnover of companies, a new sort of, you know, a new approach to it. And I, I think there's a real optimism on that. Very hard to see it, as my poor articulation suggests, but there is something very powerful and positive coming, but we're just going to probably have to wait a couple of years. So taking that three to three to 10 year part of the curve, so to speak, 2023, 24 out to 2030, they could be some of our best days. That could be back to the 1990s, but we're going to have a pretty tricky period to get us into the position that will mean that that can be delivered on. Mate, that's a, a sobering short term, but, a, but an optimistic long term to finish on. Warren Hogan, industry professor at UTS. Thank you for joining me. We're on Motley Full Money. Thanks, well, that does wrap us up. Before we go, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple N Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave us a review, tell your friends. We're sure they could use a little Foolish Straight Talk too. And, of course, don't forget you can get a dose of Foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Full Money. Full on. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.